Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 22, Columbia River Basalts. Thanks for listening. Flood basalts. That's the topic today. Again, we've learned most of our uh, basic concepts now, by this point in the podcast series, and so we're able to kind of talk about exceptions to the rule as opposed to rules. And that's where things get kind of fun, especially if it helps us understand the Pacific Northwest, which is what I'm aiming to do here. And if you're listening from other places in North America or even around the world, um, I'm sorry, man. I I focus on the Pacific Northwest and the state of Washington to be particular uh, because that's what I know the best. And I... Uh, as a student, I, I wanted specifics about places. I didn't want just kind of general concepts. That was just my taste. And so I've, I've carried that on as, a, as an instructor. I try to take everything and plug it right back into this place that we love called the state of Washington here in the Pacific Northwest. So these Columbia River basalts are a big story. And one of the most well-known stories here in the Pacific Northwest. So that's our goal today, to talk about uh, what it was like when these lavas were doing their thing and where we can see these lavas today and brainstorm why this kind of freak show happened. Because it's stuff that should not have happened. If you follow the global rule, this is an exception, not the rule. So let's start with what the rule is. Columbia River Basalt, that's the title of the episode. Well, you've heard of the Columbia River. That's the main river flowing through the Pacific Northwest and draining our part of North America. Fine. But the third word, basalt, we know a bunch about basalt already. We've had episodes talking about volcanoes and igneous rocks. So let's make a mental list right now of all things that we know about basalt. What have we learned to this point in the series about basalt? Well, it's lava. We're talking about basalt, right? Basalt. There were three kinds of lavas. There was basalt lava, andesite lava, rhyolite lava. Remember? Uh, So the basalt was this dark-colored rock, often black, Uh, Basalt is low silica, 45% silica. Therefore, basalt lava, when it comes out of the ground, is very fluid. Um, Low silica, low viscosity, fine. Uh, It flows very well. Mm -hmm. Where can I go in the world today to find basalt lava coming out of the ground? Well, Hawaii is the most famous place to go. Kilauea volcano has been erupting continuously for almost three decades now. That's basalt lava being created before our very eyes. Iceland, Galapagos, there were plenty of places in ocean settings where we had the basalt. And that's the first major point that we already know. Major point number one, which we already know. Basalt, in other words, mafic magma, we decided globally was found in the oceans. That's where basalt should be. That's where basalt lava is created most of the time. You have a heat source. You melt ocean crust. You make basalt lava. So all the ocean floors of the world, basalt. Seafloor spreading centers like the East Pacific Rise in the last episode or uh, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, basalt, basalt, basalt. Great. 
But this episode is talking about an unusual amount of what should be oceanic lava in a place that's not the ocean. Try these places on for size. Ellensburg, Washington, Yakima, Washington, Lewiston, Idaho, Hell's Canyon, Spokane, Washington, Bend, Oregon. Those are places far from the ocean, and yet there's incredible amounts of basalt, Columbia River basalt, nearby or underneath, down. So that's our mission today, is to describe the basalt pile and then, more fun, try to speculate what happened. Why do we have this almost like an accident? Why do we have these flood basalts? And they're called flood basalts because there's so much of this mafic magma flowing in a continental setting that it takes that landscape and floods it, buries it in lava. That idea is very fun. You can even have a, a series of mountains. And if there's enough mafic magma, if there's enough basalt lava, you're going to fill the low spots first and eventually completely bury a whole rugged mountainous landscape. And that is the story for eastern Washington. All right. So let's um, picture a map, first of all. Let me try to describe how much of the inland Pacific Northwest is floored with Columbia River basalt lava. Well, let's just try it. What the hell? Can you picture a map where we go from... Oh, I'll just do it this way. Um, if you can picture the state of Washington... Uh, and a third of the state, the southeastern third of the state of Washington, has amazing amounts of basalt lava called the Columbia River basalts. That's everything south of Spokane. That's everything uh, east of Yakima, even a little bit west of Yakima. That's everything north and east of Bend, Oregon. And that's everything northwest of Boise. I don't know if that works or not. Here's another way to say it. Uh, a large section of the uh, real estate between the Rocky Mountains and the Cascades have Columbia River basalt lava. Again, we're you know half a state away from the nearest ocean, and yet we have oceanic lavas, basalt, coming out of the ground. Okay. Um, let's just do more kind of field data here, describing these basalt lavas. Well, right off the bat, you realize the scale is just wrong. Um, in many places, individual basalt lava flows um, flowed 300 miles. <laughs> How's that even possible? How do you keep something molten for 300 miles? There's discussion right now about that. The leading idea is that you actually develop a crust at the surface, and then you flow a bunch of that molten mafic material underneath that crust so that things are kind of insulated to keep it molten. But anyway, we've got individual flows that are on average 100 feet thick, each lava flow 100 feet thick, and oftentimes traveling 300 miles. Uh, I commonly talk about the Columbia River basalt lavas like a big German chocolate cake. 
or each layer in this brown cake is 100 feet thick. That's a flow, a one lava flow. And the basalt lavas are stacked one on top of another. And in the middle of the cake, in the middle of the German chocolate cake at a place called Tri-Cities, the cake is three miles thick. You heard me right. There's 15,000 feet of basalt stacked one on top of another, and there's 300 layers in this cake. 300 basalt lava flows, each of them 100 feet thick on average, totaling three miles thick in the middle. Now, as we get away from Tri-Cities and head up towards Spokane or head up towards Grand Coulee Dam or head over towards Kalielum, Washington, uh, it gets thinner and thinner. It's two miles, then one mile, then a half mile thick, and then eventually it pinches out to nothing. But in the middle of the cake, three miles, and we know that three-mile number because back in the 1980s, the Shell Oil Company was here looking for oil and natural gas, and they were convinced there were large plays for oil and natural gas underneath the basalts, and all they had to do was drill through the Columbia River basalts to finally get to the good stuff, to get to the sandstones and shales that potentially had a bunch of hydrocarbons in them. And so Shell was here, and they did drill, and they never dreamt they'd get three miles of it. By the time they finally got to the bottom of the German chocolate cake, three miles of drilling through the worthless basalt, they finally got to some rocks, and some of them were the right kinds of rocks, and some of them did find some reserves of natural gas, but they gave up and said, hey, this is just too costly to keep going through all this basalt to get to the good stuff. So because of the drilling, we know the various thicknesses of the Columbia River basalts as a whole, and we have a good feeling for the, the size and the, and the thickness of the, of the overall German chocolate cake. Now, uh, to add a little bit of detail, which is maybe not appropriate at the moment because we want to get to the fun stuff of asking why, uh, let's finish out with our field notes. Uh, we know the ages of these flows. Uh, originally, we knew the ages from the basalts themselves, and now we have more accurate ages from the sedimentary interbeds between the basalt flows. But the main message is that our flows go from, the, think of the German chocolate cake, uh, the oldest flows are 17 million years old, and the youngest are 6 million years old. So that's kind of misleading to say the Columbia River basalts are, were active between 17 and 6 million years, because 97% of that cake came out of the ground between 17 and 15.6 million years ago. So for the most part, the system was shutting down almost completely by 15 and a half million years ago. But there were still a couple of dinky little flows that dribbled up to the surface even as young as six million years ago, the monumental flow. Okay, um, so we have names, and if you're familiar with the Columbia River Basalt, you know all, there's way too many names. You know, every, every layer has been named. Uh, some geologists use different names than other geologists. And if you're in Oregon, the, there's more names compared to the Washington names. It's an it's a absolute disaster in my mind as far as uh, confusing everybody. So I don't want to get into all the names. I do, however, want to use a couple of major points. And that is that the middle part of the cake, 
between 16 and 15.6 million years ago, uh, 90% of the basalt came out of the ground. This is called the Grand Ronde time. And those Grand Ronde flows were monsters. They came out of the ground from cracks in extreme southeastern Washington and northeastern Oregon, kind of along the Idaho state line. That's where the lavas came out of the ground for the Columbia River basalts. And even though we're talking about oceanic-type lavas, the lavas are coming out of the ground damn near Idaho and then flowing to the west. And some of those Grand Ronde lava flows made it from the Hell's Canyon area all the way to the lighthouses of the Oregon coast. That's a tremendous story. And that's a time, by the way, when the Cascade Mountains were not as tall as they are now, and so some of those flows um, made it to the coast by crossing low parts in the Cascades. So I hope you have a feeling for the general layout, the general scene of the Columbia River basalt lavas. I'll add one more descriptive thing, and then we'll get to the good stuff. The descriptive part is if we take one individual flow, any of the individual flows out of the 300 of the guys that we've got, right? You can find some features down at the scale of one flow. What features? Well, there's a place where the basalt is full of little holes, like little BB-shaped holes. Uh, it's almost like miniature Swiss cheese. And those holes are called vesicles, and many of you know that vesicles are where gas bubbles were trying to swim out of the cooling lava. And it's kind of a sad story. Those vesicles are where the bubbles didn't make it. They got trapped in the cooling lava. The point is, if you're in one of the lava flows, again, average 100 feet thick, you know if you're at the top of one of the lava flows if you can find these vesicles. The vesicles form typically at the top of a cooling lava flow, and that should make sense why that is. Bubbles are going to rise. You know, the gases are coming up with the magma. Then as the lava is flowing over the surface of the ground, the bubbles are rising, just like bubbles in a beautiful stein of beer. And uh, some of those bubbles didn't quite make it out, and so we can find that Swiss cheese vesicular basalt at the top of a flow. This is important because quite often this German chocolate cake is monotonous in appearance. If you're in a river canyon and you have uh, a dozen of these uh, basalt lava flows, they all look about the same. They've got the same color. They've got very uh, tiny minerals in them. It's very difficult to tell them apart. In fact, some geologists can view these Columbia River basalts as boring or, you know, big giant cow pie or whatever, you know. Uh, but those of us that know the basalts well, uh, we know the complexities and the interesting questions going on in that flood basalt country. Still, at the scale of one individual flow, there's always a vesicular top. At the bottom of the lava flow, sometimes, but not always, you'll have much larger what appear to be circular features, like basketball-sized dark brown circles with kind of some e orangish, greenish, kind of crumbly stuff around the, uh, the brown basketballs. That's called the pillow zone. And if you can find good pillow basalt at the base of one particular flow, you know that there were certain conditions when that flow crossed the area. 
The main message is if you have pillow basalts, water was present. And you're like, oh, like the ocean? Well, no, this is flood basalt stuff. This is, this is lavas coming out of the ground in damn near Idaho and then flowing over central Washington, where Washington was a, a big, beautiful state at that time. So there is no ocean water we're talking about, but we are talking about temporary freshwater lakes or sometimes even rivers that are getting pushed and shoved by these advancing lavas. So if you can find those pillows, you know that water was present. Well, what is a pillow? What's with these brown basketball things? Well, specifically, they're not actually basketballs. They just look like they're circles. Instead, in three dimension, those pillows are like spaghetti noodles. So think of a spaghetti noodle that has the circumference of a basketball and realize that those spaghetti noodles or those fingers of basalt are individual fingers that are protruding out into some water. So here's the concept. We know what it looks like when Hawaiian lava flows leave the Big Island of Hawaii and go into the Pacific Ocean. In other words, we have underwater photography, videography of that lava. It's a dangerous place to record, but you can see those lavas going into the Pacific and the lavas split into these crackling fingers as they go into the water. And there's a lot of chilled obsidian around the margin, as you can imagine. You can imagine the temperature gradient between the inside of an, a liquid blob of basaltic magma, more than 1,000 degrees centigrade, going into Pacific Ocean water. Well, same idea here in central Washington. You've got a 100-degree, excuse me, 100-thick, 100-foot-thick lava going into some sort of lake uh, the thickness of the lava is probably thicker than the depth of the lake, and yet the lower portion of that basalt flow, as it continues to pour over central Washington, is going to be affected by that water significantly. And those pillows are telling us that that water was present. That's key. Finally, when the lava starts to cool, whether there was water present or not, we're eventually going to cool the lava, right? The lava is not hot now. You can pick it up. You can break it open with a hammer. Well, this is back 15 million years ago, 16 million years ago, and we're cooling these lavas. It's not all going to cool exactly at the same time. And the concept is that the interior of the lava flow, especially if it's a 100-foot thick lava, think of a lava flow the thickness of a three-story building. You're not going to cool at all on a Sunday morning. You're going to have the interior of that flow remain molten while the outside, the top and the bottom, are going to cool quicker because they're in contact with, with us. So the idea is that as you form a skin on the top and the bottom of the lava, you form basalt, but you contract those surfaces so much as they cool that you crack you crack those skins, and all through nature, contracting surfaces form um, cracks that form in these mathematically derived patterns. Like think of a drying mud puddle uh, after it's wet. So the wet mud turns to dry mud, and we contract those surfaces, and we form these beautiful cracks that have these stop sign-shaped patterns. There's a variation on that. They're not all six-sided or seven-sided or eight-sided, but there's, uh, there's math applied to that. Poorly understood, by the way. Fractals, that sort of thing. 
Well, the same idea is happening with these cooling lavas. We form this skin on the top and the bottom. We form these beautiful polygonal-shaped cracks. And then, as we cool the interior of the lava, those cracks kind of crackle their way towards the middle of the flow, like a big stop sign-shaped cookie cutter, working its way from the bottom up and sometimes from the top down as the lava continues to cool. You know what I'm describing, don't you? Columnar basalt, one of the most beautiful, uh, almost man-made-looking features in nature. We have them all over the place in eastern Washington, these beautiful basalt columns. And uh, they formed when the lava cooled. And when you lead student field trips or old people field trips out there, everybody asks about the columns. And there's so many geometries out there that are very difficult to explain. So it kind of ticks me off, actually. I wish I had a good explanation for all the things that everybody's observing. Everybody's pumped. They all want to talk about these columns that they're looking at. But there's much that we do not yet understand about column formation. Okay. One flow in the flood basalt story, one of the 300 flows, vesicles at the top always, pillows at the base sometimes if water was present, and then columns sometimes but not always. That's another mystery. Why do, why do some columns, why do some flows have amazing columns, other flows have no columns, some kind of poorly, everything else in between. Okay, the last portion of this episode is to speculate tectonically about why. We need a heat source. We need to make incredible amounts of mafic magma and have it come out of the ground by Idaho. How are we going to do that? Do you have an idea? We actually take a full class period to explore ideas from everybody. They have enough tectonic background and volcano background that they're feeling pretty cocky about themselves, and then there's all sorts of ideas. And I don't want to do a full episode on just ideas, so let's kind of cut to the chase. There are still a few questions that remain, but most geologists now are tying the Columbia River basalt lavas to the Yellowstone hotspot. That's a big message. And at first glance, you're like, that doesn't sound possible, because I, I remember that episode we just did on different kinds of volcanoes. And aren't you talking about basalt lava in this episode? Yes, I am. And why are you talking about Yellowstone, which is the opposite kind of volcano? Do you remember? Yellowstone had the 75% silica magma. Yellowstone had the incredible supervolcano explosions and calderas and ash and ash flow tough and all that stuff. How in the world are you going to make Yellowstone connect to this Columbia River basalt story? Well, hear me out. First of all, it's a time and place thing. The cracks, we call them fissures, the fissures that are responsible for sending mafic magma to the surface to make the flood basalts of this episode, the cracks began to form 17 million years ago. And if you recall, we had the Yellowstone hotspot in northern Nevada 17 million years ago. So the first major message with this kind of tectonic brainstorming for why the Columbia River basalts exist is that the earliest fissures to make the basalts and one of the earliest Yellowstone caldera sources 
are in the same place at the same time. Northern Nevada, 17 million years ago. Now, you can't tell me, you cannot tell me that that's just a coincidence. Now, I know there's problems. We've got runny lava, the basalts. We've got very stiff, sticky, explosive rhyolitic material, the Yellowstone story. Acting on opposite ends of the spectrum, this is something called bimodal volcanism, where you actually have two opposite kinds of lavas and volcanic activity related to the same scene. But we clearly have all sorts of ways now to tie these things together, the Columbia River basalts and the Yellowstone hotspot. Since 17 million years ago, those two systems have kind of wandered away from each other. With the Yellowstone story, we know that the Yellowstone activity continued to march its way from northern Nevada through southern Idaho, and now it's in northern Wyoming. If you remember that episode, it's not really a march to the northeast of the Yellowstone hotspot. Instead, it's the North American plate drifting to the southwest, but you get the point. In the case of our fissures today to make the Columbia River basalts, as we go from the bottom to the top of our German chocolate cake, the fissures making those layers in the cake are not all forming at the same time. That's a key observation. The fissures to make the Columbia River basalts, the cracks themselves get younger and younger as you go north. So 17 million years ago, the earliest of the layers in the German chocolate cake were down in northern Nevada and southeastern Oregon. But as we get into 16 and a half, 16 million years ago, 15 and a half, 15 million years ago, the fissures are starting to open as we get towards northeastern Oregon and southeastern Washington. That's more evidence that these two systems are related to each other. So that all seems pretty comfortable, but there are lingering questions, aren't there? You've got a couple right now. Why rhyolite and basalt from the same story? Why would you have this schizophrenic volcanic story? Well, there are problems with that, and we're still working out the details. The general message is you can melt continental crust create rhyolite and create the explosive scene. And then the fissures are often thought of as being deep structures that are plumbing the mantle directly. So in that way of thinking about this, you can have rhyolite and basalt in the same volcanic story if we're realizing that the rhyolite is kind of from a shallow continental crust magmatism, and the basalts, the topic today, are deep sources of magma rising quickly through the overriding North American crust. Because that hopefully has dawned on you by this point in the episode. We learned a few episodes ago that you make basalt by melting the ocean crusts of the world. You make rhyolite by melting the continental crust of the world. And yet, We've got this whole German chocolate cake coming out of the continents. That's the wrong kind of lava. Most everybody agrees that you have to get the basalt from the below the moho, below the continental crust, and get that stuff to the surface quickly. And that allows us to have both of these kinds of lavas from the same system.
There's other things going on. These fissures are pretty much right at the old edge of North America, a concept we haven't talked about yet, but that's coming. There's a major problem where most of the lavas are coming out of fissures that are in northeastern Oregon instead of down there where the hotspot used to be. That one is a total mystery to me. Why would you have most of the basalt lava coming out of cracks that are a half a state away from where the hotspot was? That's a tough one. So there's work to be done with these flood basalts. We'll finish this episode with this. The Columbia River basalts have been studied to death. There's a lot of interesting work that's been done over the last 50 to 100 years. But we are not the only place to have flood basalts. You've heard of India, the Deccan Plateau, the Siberian Traps. There's other places where even larger cow pies exist. You know, our German chocolate cake, that's more appetizing than cow pie, I guess. But our German chocolate cake is thought to be a very large um, area of mafic magma. But our flood basalt pile is smaller than what's in India and smaller than on one in Siberia. And there are hot spots tied to those flood basalt areas as well. And the last comment, which I hope doesn't ruffle your feathers too much, is that it's quite clear that these major flood basalt times and places around the world are coincident with major mass extinctions in the fossil record. So a major event that affects the entire globe is often associated with these flood basalt stories. And that's the ultimate question. If we tie flood basalts to hotspots, why are the hotspots forming when they do? And how are we actually killing large groups of animals and plants tied to this story? So I might get gutsy enough. I think I actually am. I think I'm going to be gutsy enough this next year. I, I do four new downtown lectures every April and record them for YouTube. And I'm just done with the last batch. and I'm kind of burnt out at the moment. But uh, or this summer, I'm going to start rolling. And I think one of the episodes, I'm kind of saying this now to kind of force myself to do it. I want to do a lecture on volcanoes and climate. And I know that I'll be on the receiving end of a bunch of hate, but I don't care. I'm, I'm a big boy. I can handle it now. And uh, to tie flood basalts to climate change and to tie cone volcano explosions with ash and climate change, uh, I think something can be done with that and separate it from you know, the last 200 years of human activity and all that politics. I think I can avoid all that, and I want to avoid all that because I don't know much of that stuff at all. But I think there's a need to just look at the geologic record with what we know about climate change and when these major volcanic events happened and talk about a link between those two things. I think I can do that without pissing too many people off, but we'll see. So today we were talking about, past tense, we were talking about the Columbia River basalts, the flood basalts in the inland Pacific Northwest. And whether you visit Frenchman Cooley 
or Grand Coulee, or the Yakima River Canyon, or the Columbia River Gorge on the way to Portland, or Cannon Beach on the Oregon coast, or Hell's Canyon uh, on the Idaho-Oregon line, all those places are places to visit the German chocolate cake on full display. And the last comment is, this cake is so wide and so thick that you never get to one place where you can see the whole cake. And as a teacher, that's a bit challenging because you just use all these big words and everything's so huge and amazing, but you can't go to one place to see it all. Instead, you've got to visit, you know, dozens and dozens of places and then kind of build the cake in your mind, which is a much more challenging task for most of us, including myself. But all the data is there, and we know how big those series of events were back in the Miocene. Well, listener, I appreciate you hanging with this one. We're going to stick with volcanoes, but the next episode we're going to go to much more obvious and famous volcanoes, the Cascade Volcanoes in the Pacific Northwest. Thanks for listening. I love you.